First Thessalonians chapter 1 as we begin a new series. We're going to look at uh, an entire verse this morning. For context, let's read a little further. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Somebody gave me a newspaper article not long ago that said, The Calvary Baptist Church in Salem, Virginia, had Harvey and Pauline Richardson, age 82 and 74, charged with trespassing when they tried to attend Sunday services in February. The feud began when the church denied the Richardsons, members for 39 years, the right to vote on church business because they had missed services for eight months, beginning late last year, mostly due to various illnesses. That's what happens when a church loses touch with the very purpose for its existence. It loses sight of what God intended the church to become. The church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. And we must always keep close touch with that whole reason that we exist. We can become static, fixed in position. And oftentimes churches, as well as individuals, can become static instead of dynamic. They just sort of stop. They slow down. They're not making progress anymore in their own relationship with God. And what happens? Well, they become more interested in status than in souls, more concerned about members and money rather than ministry. There was a poll taken not too long ago, a few years back, asking people why they don't go to church. Those that responded said, 49% of them said the church is just not effective in helping them find meaning in life. 56% said that the churches were too concerned about organizational issues rather than spiritual issues. I've turned to the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning because it is a great model of dynamic discipleship. People who caught a vision and that continues to grow as they follow the Lord. When John MacArthur spoke on a Thursday night here a little over a year ago, he asked how old the church was and I told him and he said, you know, it seems that the first 10 years of a church are the most exciting. 
People gather around a common vision, willing to sacrifice, meet anywhere, do anything. And I thought, well, you know, that is true, but I don't want it just to stop at the 10-year mark. But that excitement to grow as we see what God not only did in the past, but what He's doing now and what He wants to do in the future. But there does seem to be a natural atrophy that occurs in many churches. In fact, those who study Christian denominations and movements uh, give three M's to the phases they see in certain movements. They call it first man, then movement, then monument. Usually things begin with the vision that God gives a person. That vision is given to other people. They take the vision, run with it, and then it turns into phase two. A movement begins. It seems to just get progress and momentum like a large snowball down a hill. But eventually, if certain things don't continue the way they began, you can end up with a monument. You start looking backwards. Oh, that great founder, and we used to do things this way, and always immortalizing some past act rather than have freshness for the present and the future. And so we've turned to the book of First Thessalonians because it's a good counter to that. By the way, that tendency has always been around. It is not something that is new. Jesus wrote a letter to a church called Sardis had the same problem. In fact, Jesus said, I know your works, and I know that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, the church at Thessalonica was a refreshing antithesis to all of this. You see, they were at best a year old. A fresh work began there. They'd been growing a year just about has elapsed, and Paul writes this letter after about a year of spiritual growth in this city. The church is zealous, very active in sharing their faith. They are displaying genuine love and concern for each other, the members of the body of Christ, and they are eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. They're waiting for Him at any moment. I don't know about you, but I do not want to atrophy as a Christian, or as a body of believers. I want to see God continue to do a work through me personally, through us corporately as a fellowship. I want to be dynamic rather than static. I don't like professional Christians. I just like plain old Christians who have a real zeal and desire to serve the Lord in any kind of time. Um, this morning, I want to look at, first of all, the background of this church, so we can lay a grid for future studies, the background of this church, then the burden of the church planter, the reason Paul wrote this letter, and then the beginning of the church letter in verses 1 and 2, specifically verse 1. The background of this letter that we're reading goes all the way back to Acts chapter 17. I'm going to turn there, and we're going to read from a few verses in just a moment. But let me just give you a little bit of summation up to this point in the book of Acts. Paul is on his second trip, his second missionary journey. Things have been going well. He travels through Phrygia, ends up in Galatia. He stays there for a while because he got a physical disease which prevented him from going any further. And because he was there sick, he preached the gospel to the Galatians. 
As he was moving along, it says the Holy Spirit would not let him preach the gospel in Asia. So he moves down to Troas. And while he's in Troas, in the middle of the night, he has a vision. In this vision, he sees a man from Macedonia, ancient Greece, standing in front of him, talking to him, begging him, Paul, come over to Macedonia, help us. Paul believed that this was a message from God. He gets up. Next day, he goes with Silas, his friend, his helper, and they go to Macedonia. The first stop is Philippi. They share the gospel. Things happen. People get saved. A riot breaks out. Paul is thrown in prison. And he and Silas have their hands, their arms in chains in a Philippian jail. And I'm sure at that point Silas is saying, are you sure that you heard from God? That wasn't just pizza that gave you that vision last night. This was really God. But instead of complaining, they start singing songs to the Lord at midnight from a jail cell. I don't see too many prisoners doing that. And as they were singing, it says a great earthquake shook the prison. The chains fell off. And I always like to think that the Lord is just enjoying the music. He was just tapping his foot. Tapped a little too forcefully and poof, an earthquake happened. As they left Philippi, they went about a hundred miles south to a town called Thessalonica, where we get the term the Thessalonians. And uh, he preaches the gospel there, and we're just about to read it. But an interesting thing about the reason that they came to this region. They came there because it says the Holy Spirit was forbidding them to preach the gospel in Asia. You mean the Holy Spirit forbids people to share? He sure does. There are times when God says, I don't want you to just move for the sake of movement. I want you to move specifically in my will. And my will, Paul, is not for you to preach the gospel in Asia. I want you down in Greece, in Macedonia. He had a programmed and a specific method of spreading the gospel. And it wasn't at this time to be in that part of Greece or that part of Turkey, Asia Minor, but to be down in Thessalonica and also down in Philippi. The Bible says the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. I would add to that from the scripture, not only the steps of the righteous man are ordered by the Lord, but the stops of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. You see, there's a lot of Christians who think they ought to always just be busy because it's good to be busy. No, it's not. It's good to be busy when God tells you to be busy. And there's sometimes when God wants you to just rest and listen and take your cues from Him. You can make a lot of motion and not go anywhere. Rocking chairs do that. You can sit in a chair and rock all day long and be very busy making movements but not going forward. When God says no, it's just as important as when God says go. I remember the time I lived in Huntington Beach, California, and I got a call from Aspen, Colorado. A small fellowship was beginning and they needed a pastor and they said, would you be interested in moving to Aspen, Colorado to pastor a church? And uh, I wanted to say, yes. I said, well, I better pray about it. Lord, should I? Okay, I'll go. I mean, I shut up a quick one. 
And I committed myself to going. I thought, hey, free ski passes. This could be just the place that God wants me to go. But things started to not work out. Doors began to close. Obvious stop signs were appearing. God was putting the brakes on. And God was telling me, no, I don't want you in Aspen. It's another city that begins with an A. Albuquerque, New Mexico. The steps and the stops of those that the Lord directs are ordered by Him. Now, why was this city so important? Let me tell you a little bit about Thessalonica. It was the capital of Macedonia, or ancient Greece. Through the middle of the town, just like we have Route 66, that at one time was a main artery connecting parts of this nation, through the middle of Thessalonica was a road called the Via Ignatia, which was the main Roman road that spanned all of Macedonia from east to west, connecting Macedonia with Rome, which means a lot of travelers, business people, ended up in that town as they would exchange their goods from one part of the world to the other. Thessalonica was on the coast. It had the most magnificent harbor in all of Macedonia. Ships from all over the world could be seen in it. In fact, it was given the name, the key to the whole of Macedonia. About 200,000 people lived in Thessalonica, uh, mostly Greeks, a few Romans, some Orientals, and lots of Jews, which made it very appealing to Paul the Apostle because he was raised Jewish. He was also a Roman citizen. He knew the Greek culture. Thessalonica was perfect. It could be a launching pad to get the gospel out throughout many parts of the world. So he moves 100 miles south. As soon as he gets to Macedonia, hits Philippi, after uh, being sprung from jail, he makes his way now down to Thessalonica. Now, the morals of this city, you'll hear references to them in this book. The morals of Thessalonica were like any ancient Greek city. Not good. Not high. Very much like America, basically. Sex was not openly spoken against. It's, you do your own thing. It's okay as long as everybody's doing it. Don't make a fuss. In the midst of that, Paul calls for a holy lifestyle, as we'll see in the next few weeks. It probably wasn't as bad as Corinth, the place from which Paul wrote this letter, but it was bad enough. In fact, you'll hear references to live a holy life. And uh, it's very applicable to our generation, this book. In fact, we used to call it first Fleshalonians, because Paul wrote so much against the sins of the flesh in this book. In Acts chapter 17, where I've had you turn, we read, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them three Sabbaths and reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Messiah had to suffer, rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. A work has now begun. Thessalonica could become a launching pad, and it did. In fact, remember what we just read in verse 8 of chapter 1? That the gospel has sounded forth from you through all of Macedonia. 
Exactly what Paul had in mind is beginning to happen now in these verses. The gospel is shared. Some people believe, and as always, some people do not believe. Those who do not believe are not just passive non-believers. They don't just walk away going, Hey, Paul, whatever's cool, man. Uh, we're not into that. They were aggressive non-believers. They believed in beating people who believed in Christ. So they go to the marketplace, and they hire loiterers, people who are just hanging out for a good time. And they use some of these men, pay them off, to create a ruckus within that city. Verse 5, the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some evil men. You know, in some verses of the scripture, you just can't beat the old King James. It says, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. It's a great description of these. These are guys who are just thugs. They're hanging out in the corner just looking for a good time. They want to roll somebody. Lewd fellows of the baser sort, evil men, from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all of the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Evidently, Paul stayed at Jason's house. Jason is this brand new baby believer who's about to be persecuted. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. I've always loved this verse in the book of Acts. Here's Christians, people who turn the world upside down. I'd rephrase that. We turn the world right side up. It's already backwards and upside down. But having a Christian influence, it turns it back to the Lord. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason, that is a bond, and from the rest, they let them go. Now all of this has happened within three weeks. Three consecutive Saturdays, Sabbath days, Paul hits the synagogue and preaches the gospel. He hits the synagogue, number one, because that's always his policy to go to the Jew first, then also to the Greek. Secondly, within a synagogue, he's got a ready-made audience. They're Jewish. He's Jewish. They believe in the Messiah. He knows the Messiah has come. What better place to speak about Jesus than a synagogue? He goes to the synagogue. He's rejected. But a church begins. This is the background to this letter. A church begins in Thessalonica. Within three weeks' time, just letting the gospel out changes the lives of people in that city. You know, it doesn't take long to start a church. I know some people think, oh, a church, what a huge project. Not when God's doing it. It's relatively simple. Some people think, well, the way you start a church is you move to a town and you take demographics. You find out the median age, the median income, the interest, the education, and then you tailor a church to meet those needs. No, you don't. You just let the gospel loose and let the Holy Spirit do what He wants. You know, sometimes I think that we are guilty of taking the Holy Spirit's job away from Him. As if to say, hey, Spirit, listen, we're so thankful that you've moved for 2,000 years, but we've got flowcharts now. We've got boards We've got computer programs. Go work in China where they really need you. 
We've got it wired now. We're going to program this baby and just make it just tweaked. Uh, Paul just went there and preached the gospel in the synagogue, and the result was some received it and some did not. Well, Paul the Apostle is not there when they come to Jason's house. He must have snuck out at night. And we read in the next several verses, he goes down to the city of Berea. From Berea, he moves to Athens. From Athens, he sends out Timothy and Silas, called here in verse 1, Silvanus, sends them back to Thessalonica, saying, Hey guys, strengthen the believers. Bring me a report on how they're doing. By the time they arrive and give Paul the report, about a year has transpired altogether. Paul is now in Corinth, and from Corinth he writes the letter, 1 Thessalonians. That's the background of this letter. Now let's look at the burden of the church planter. Why did Paul write this letter? Well, there's a lot of reasons. First of all, he's very excited for what has happened. He's just watched God move incredibly in a new city. But, though he hears wonderful, glowing reports about a young, vibrant church doing what God wanted them to do, he's concerned. After all, they hated him when he was there. So those new young believers must be having a tough time of persecution. Well, Timothy comes and gives a report. Let's look back at 1 Thessalonians now, chapter 3, and we see that the report was a good report. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and complete or perfect what is lacking in your faith. Paul had a burden on his heart. This church planter wrote this letter for at least four different reasons. Number one, for encouragement in the midst of growth. Encouragement in the midst of growth. They were growing. They were flourishing. And uh, several times Paul encourages them in this, as, as if to say, hey, you're doing right. Keep doing it. Get better at it. Do more of it. Preach the gospel more. Love one another more. It's always dangerous when Christians level out, hit a plateau. They don't continue to grow anymore. It's like, been there, done that. Don't need to really mature. I'm already a mature believer. Woe to that person who doesn't continue to grow in their walk. That type of a person will always look backwards instead of forwards. He has memories only of God's work. He's always past tense. I remember when the God, oh, God moved through my life back in 19, what was it? God should be at work in your life today. All of those past tense experiences are wonderful, but if they aren't translated into present-day experience, what good are they? 
encouragement in the midst of growth. Keep growing. Keep at it. In fact, I would say that people are like trees. They either die or grow. You're either going forward or you're going backwards. This last week I had the opportunity to be in Colorado and I learned something new. I've been a skier for years, sort of. But I took up a new sport that is more closer to home for me and that is snowboarding. And in the end of the day, I was on one steeper cliff that was pretty much sheer ice, and I had an outfit on that doesn't stick to the snow. In fact, it's like oil. And I, instead of moving forward at one point, I fell, and I slid almost down the entire face of the slope until I dug my edge in and got back, and I thought, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> if I'm not going forward and making progress, I am just sliding down this hill. And I don't want to make progress on my backside. I'd rather stand up and make progress. So Thessalonians, you're growing, you're loving, you're sharing your faith. Go for it. Keep at it. Encouragement in the midst of growth. Secondly, strength. The purpose for this letter, strength in the midst of difficulties. Remember, Jason was a brand new believer. They make a big to-do about him. They persecute him. You know, when you're a brand new baby Christian, you give your life to Jesus Christ. It's awfully frustrating when life gets worse instead of better at first. You give your life to Jesus expecting these wonderful things to happen, and all of a sudden persecution, distress, and you wonder, are we having fun yet? This is abundant life. So Paul wants to strengthen them lest they become cream puff Christians. They want, he wants them to stick it out in the midst of tough times. A third reason he wrote this letter is for purity in the midst of immorality. It was an immoral city. It was a city that had idolatry, open sexual encounters, and he wanted them to keep their bodies pure. It's very difficult, is it not, in a society that is promiscuous, that doesn't look down on pushing the envelope sexually? It's difficult to maintain that purity. I mean, there is sex advertised in every newsstand. And so Paul encourages them to personal holiness, to walk and follow the Lord that way. And fourthly, this letter is written for instruction in the midst of confusion. Instruction in the midst of confusion. Many of them were confused because they remember Paul speaking about the coming again of Jesus Christ for the church. And they were all upset. Has it happened? Will it happen? When will Jesus come again? Are there signs we have to look for? The whole idea of Bible prophecy, the rapture of the church, is discussed in this book. In fact, every chapter closes with a reference to the return of Jesus Christ, and a whole chapter is devoted to it. There's still a lot of um, uncertainty about Bible prophecy these days. And I think that the uncertainty grows as Christian television and radio gets bigger and bigger. Because it seems that everybody talks about it, but even on the same station there's conflicting messages. And it causes confusion. And Paul will say, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the coming of the Lord. So this is the burden of the church planter. This is the reason he wrote it. In short, he wants them to become dynamic disciples. And I pray that all of us, as we read this book, will get a vision for our own lives perspective for our own fellowship. We're going to learn about Christian evangelism. And you're going to learn something amazing. 
Christian evangelism was not meant principally to take place in large arenas. It was meant to take place in your own personal life as you and I get the gospel out. We're going to learn about Christian hope, what it means to eagerly wait for the coming of the Lord. We're going to learn about Christian conduct, living according to the gospel in the midst of an evil and a wicked generation. And I hope that as we learn, as we receive this letter, that we will become like the Thessalonians, alive. What's great is, here you have a young church, but they are so alive because they are active. They're not just busy, they're active in doing what God wants them to do. There was a pastor who went to Oklahoma and took over a small church that was dying. First four days he was in town, he called all the people that came to the church and said, hey, this is a new start, uh, a new work of God's going to begin, please come Sunday. None of them showed up. So he took out some space in the local newspaper and he said, this church is now declared dead. And I feel that it is my God-given duty to give it a proper burial. So we will have a funeral service for this church Sunday afternoon. Well, out of curiosity, the whole town came. Sure enough, they walked in. There was a casket with flowers on it and the pulpit behind it. The pastor gave an obituary, a eulogy, and he said, Now would everybody stand, form a line, and walk by the casket and pay your last respects. As everybody walked by, they looked inside and they turned their head away in shame because inside the casket, at just the correct angle, was a large mirror. And when everybody walked by, they saw themselves in that casket. That was the reason it was dead. That was the reason the town and the church was dead is because the individuals that comprised that had lost their spark, their growth, and their life. That's a burden to Paul. He wants them to keep going. So now back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we look at the first verse, and we see now the beginning of a church letter. Paul Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The author is Paul. His team is Silvanus or Silas, same word, one's Latin, one's Greek, and Timothy. Uh, I like the way ancient letters were written. I think it makes more sense. Today we say, dear so-and-so, write a couple pages, and then at the end we sign our name. But how many of you look to the last page before you even begin the first line of the letter? I do. I want to see who it's from first. So in the ancient times, they would always give the recipients of the letter right after the author of the letter. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy. That's the one who's writing right at the beginning. Then afterwards in the ancient letters, the recipients, and then a short greeting. And Paul follows the same kind of a thing. Now notice something about this introduction. No official titles are given. Paul doesn't say, from Dr. Paul the Apostle, Ph.D., and Reverend Silvanus, and the most esteemed theologian, Timothy, Master of Divinity. It's just Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. I like that. He is on intimate terms, not professional terms, with these people. It's the heart of a pastor. 
I don't like titles, and I don't personally think God likes titles. It can puff up an individual. Paul didn't really use many titles. Usually he used Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, and God the Father. Every now and then, somebody will come up to me and say, Reverend Skip, which I've always thought is sort of an oxymoron. Don't you think? Reverend Skip. Those words just don't seem to go together. Reverend Skip? Or I'll get a letter, Reverend Heitzig, and I can tell right off the bat, these people don't know me. Otherwise, they wouldn't write that. There are too many celebrities in the church. God doesn't want big shots. He wants servants. Dwight L. Moody said, The measure of a man is not the number of his servants, but the number of people whom he serves. Yesterday on TV, there was a little special about Leonard Bernstein, the famous conductor. It reminded me of how he was once asked, what was the hardest position he had to fill in the orchestra? He said, second fiddle is always the most difficult position to fill. I can always get plenty of first violinists, but to get somebody to play backup is very difficult. Paul, Sylvanus, Timothy. And he usually introduced himself as servant. First on the list is Paul. We know about him. He's the author of this letter. He was born with a different name, Saul. In Hebrew, Shaul. Paul means little one. He probably grew up with both names. One was a Greek name, one was a Hebrew name, and depending on his company, he would use one or the other. Eventually, he was just called Paul because he was the apostle to whom? The Gentiles. His ministry was mainly with non-Jewish people. Second on the list is Silvanus, in other places called Silas. Paul picks him up on his second trip, second missionary journey. He is an esteemed brother in the Jerusalem church in Acts 15. He's also called a prophet, and he's a great helper to Paul. Next is Timothy, quite a bit younger than Paul. Paul calls him his son in the faith. And also, he said that Timothy was the only person in his ministry that really reflected his own heart. He said, I have no other person on my whole staff, my whole ministry, that really reflects my heart as I do young Timothy. Timothy was born half Greek, and he had a godly Jewish mother and a grandmother. Now, those are the authors of this book. Now notice the address. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two addresses. One physical, one spiritual. You also have a physical address and a spiritual address. The real issue is not your physical address, but your spiritual address. Your church might be in Albuquerque, New Mexico, your physical place where you fellowship, or in Los Angeles, or in Tampa, Florida. That doesn't matter. What matters is, are you in God, in Christ Jesus? There's a lot of people in churches who are not in God. This was a group of believers that was not only in Thessalonica or Thessalonica, but also in God, in Christ Jesus. Um, notice the word to the church. The word is ecclesia. It means a group of people. It never refers to a building. Although we say, hey, let's go to church. And probably that will never change. It's just the way it has become part of the meaning. Church in the Bible is always a group of people, never a place. You are the church. This building is not the church. It comes from two words, ek, kaleo, 
to call out from or to handpick. And the idea is this. God has handpicked you out of the world and put you in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ. You are called out to live for Him. Now that's the spiritual emphasis of this letter. You're God's church. You're called out of the world for the purpose of spiritual nutrition. By the way, the purpose of a real biblical church is to meet for spiritual reasons. Not political reasons, not social reasons, but spiritual reasons. And I hope that that is your reason for fellowshipping. I hope it's not a mixed motive. I know people say, hey, let's go to that church. There's a lot of cute gals that go there. Well, that may be true. But that shouldn't be the reason that draws you. It should be a spiritual hunger that draws you. I agree with the person who gave this insight. A church is all too often judged not by whether God is worshipped there in spirit and truth or whether the word of God is faithfully proclaimed. On the contrary, a church is usually judged by the attractiveness of its members and the ability to make me feel at home. Shouldn't be the case. Notice the approach now. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a sense of sweetness throughout this whole letter, and it begins with these two words. A very typical Pauline way of beginning a letter. Grace and peace. Two common greetings. They are called the Siamese twins of the New Testament. You find them in almost all of Paul's letters. Grace and peace. If you were to walk down an ancient Greek city and hold up your hand and wave, somebody would wave and say, charis, or grace, equivalent of good morning. If you were to walk through a Jewish town and you wave your hand, they would say, shalom, or peace, common Jewish greeting. He takes and combines two different greetings, puts them together, charis and irene, or peace, and he gives them a full meaning. Grace means undeserved favor. It is something you do for somebody else without any ulterior motive, any recognition wanted at all. It is usually in the Bible spoken about God who is gracious to sinful men. And it is always followed by peace. Keep that in mind. It's never reversed. It's always grace first and then peace, not peace and grace. The idea is this. You will never experience the peace of God until you're in touch with the grace of God. And when your life is permeated with the grace of God, you experience His peace. Now, as we wrap this up this morning, a couple of closing thoughts. Number one, God uses people. God could have sent an angel to Thessalonica, but He didn't. He sent a converted Jewish rabbi a man who wanted to be used by God. That's the kind of people that God uses. Today, God still uses people. God will use you only if you want Him to use you. Only if you say, Lord, here's my life. You call the shots. If you want me to go over there, fine. If you forbid me, fine, I'll go over there. But you call the shots and you use me. God is looking to use you. He's not interested in country club Christians. I call a country club Christian somebody who says, hey, look, I pay my monthly dues. Now I want all the benefits that make me feel good. God is interested in people who have hearts on fire to be used by him. A second closing thought is this. If you're a new Christian, do it right. Start out right. This is a new church, less than a year old, and they're doing it right. Please, if you are a new believer, 
Don't get like so many believers, stale and stagnant and static. Be dynamic. Don't become a professional, burned-out Christian. Stay fresh. Follow the Lord. And follow your cues from these Thessalonians. And then third closing thought is live in grace. Grace and peace. Live in God's grace. Let God's graciousness permeate your life so that you become gracious. And as you experience God's grace, guaranteed you will become a more peaceful, restful person in your walk through this world because of your relationship with God. It's January 2nd, right? It it is, right? New year. You cannot change the past. But by God's grace, you can change your future. Be committed to Him this year. Be the kind of church that God wants you to become. And understand again that the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And it begins with God's grace.